0: Father in heaven, we just thank you again for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice, his salvation. Thank you for the grace of God that is poured upon us. Lord, we pray and ask that heaven would open up and you would pour out a very special blessing to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would convict us, that you would challenge us. Lord, that you would encourage us. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be talking, as I said earlier, about the birds, the bees, and the Bible. We're going to be taking a good look at what the Bible says about sexuality. And this sermon obviously is going to be by no means exhaustive. It's designed to provoke good thinking and good questions. Can you say amen to that? But this is the kind of sermon I don't want my mom to hear. And the reason why is I have a wonderful Indian mom, although she is not a Christian, but if she ever became a Christian, I don't want her listening to this sermon. I'm okay with anybody else listening to this sermon, but if you know my mom, this is not the kind of sermon I want her to listen to, just because I am her son and I'm afraid of her slippers that she throws. (laughs) Everybody take your Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis. We're going to be taking a good look at a very interesting part of history. You know, it's really interesting when you study out the Bible, you study out the Old Testament and you can study out all of human history. But what the Old Testament is composed of are the prime cuts of human history. It is through these prime cuts of human history in which we have some of the greatest lessons. And we begin to understand the difference between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between godlessness and godliness. Here we are going to take a good look at a very interesting part of human history. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Genesis, chapter 19. This story is going to set the stage for what we are going to talk about. Genesis Chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. 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 The Bible here is describing the destruction of a city that is well known in human history. It is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, before you think to yourself, I know exactly what this sermon is going to be about, you just wait. Let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 19. Let's start with verse 1. Here the Bible says these words. Now the two angels came to where? Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face towards the ground. He said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now I want you to pay attention at what begins to happen next. Pay attention to specific details and words in this next verse. And before they lay down, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and what? Young. Young. All the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Now I want you to pay attention to their request and their desire. Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Here the Bible begins to describe... How a group of men, a group of individuals composed not just of older people, but younger people, began to surround the house of Lot. They understood two strangers to Sodom and Gomorrah had come into the city. And they thought to themselves, if we surround this house, if we come together as a mob, we will take these men out and we will experiment with their bodies. Now, generally, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, we stop right here. But I want you to see another point that is very interesting. Notice what the Bible says next. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let, them bring, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof." Now, I want you to pay attention to the second problem that exists in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not the problem that is just in the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible teaches there is also another problem in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is inside Lot's house. Here you have an example where Lot is willing to forfeit the virginity of his daughters for the sake of these angels. Now, you may think to yourself, wait a minute, Pastor Nell. He was just doing what the people did during that time. He had an intense hospitality. (laughs) Now, friends. Even if it was cultural does not make it right. Can you say amen to that? In fact. In the New Testament, the Bible does not commend Lot's hospitality, it commends Abraham's hospitality. In fact, when you study out scripture, the other example that we have that is very similar to this is in the book of Judges, chapter 13, the final chapters of the book of Judges, where we begin to see the climax of spiritual anarchy. Except in the book of Judges, it does not happen on foreign land, it actually happens on... Israel's territory you find these same kinds of dynamics oh but we're not done with the problem yet as Lot and his family begin to flee his wife turns back and she becomes a pillar of salt and they move to one city fire comes down and it seems as if the whole world has now been destroyed similar to what happened during the time of Noah And notice what the Bible says in verse 30. In verse 30. Then Lot went out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come into him, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And she did not know when she lay down or when she arose. In fact, what you read next is that the other daughter does something very similar. As you begin to examine Sodom and Gomorrah, you will begin to realize the problem is not just on the streets of Sodom, it is even in the house of righteous lots. The problem has to do with the misunderstanding of biblical sexuality. And in all three cases, you find one entity willing to take advantage of another entity without their choice. In fact, notice what I wrote right here. The problem of Sodom was a problem of selfish pursuit of pleasure. Rather than participating in the selfless mutuality within biblical sexuality, the inhabitants of Sodom corrupted sexuality and made it selfish, violent, and destructive. Now, the reason why I want to talk about biblical sexuality is because it's not just a problem of the past. Can you say amen to that? It is a big problem today, a very big problem today. And as Christians, we have been entrusted with the truth of God's word. And when the truth of God's word is not exposed, when it is not revealed, when it is not proclaimed, it then becomes a breeding ground for darkness, for evil, for corruption. And as Christians who understand the truths that are found in the book of Genesis... We are called called to uphold the principles, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath. And we are also called to uphold marriage. But within marriage is sexuality. And having a healthy biblical understanding of sexuality is a powerful thing. Can you say amen to that? You know what's really interesting? I have a German shepherd. I've told everyone that a million times. The German Shepherd's name is Hero, not Japanese H I R O H E R O Hero. Hiro. He is not a hero, I can tell you that. But I love my dog. Raised him ever since he was a puppy. Bought him off another Indian man who bought it for his children, but realized the dog was too much for them. And Hero is a very interesting dog. He looks ferocious. He is a German shepherd. He has the colors of a German shepherd. In fact, what is also very interesting, people who smell like weed or pot, Hero goes crazy around them. I can't explain it. I didn't teach him to do this. But if you smell like weed or pot and he comes near you, he starts growling and barking at you. It's an unnatural smell. Amen? Amen. And so when I come home after a long trip, I go home and I go visit my house. And when I come home, Hero runs to the door. He jumps up and he begins to greet me. As soon as he is done greeting me, he gets a bit confused. He runs into the living room and I'll go follow him into the living room. He comes back. He jumps on me. He goes back into the middle of the living room and he begins to twirl around in a circle. And the reason why he begins to twirl around in a circle is because he thinks he is seeing someone else. You see, my dog has a very big tail. He turns around because he sees movement. He thinks it is another person. And what he begins to do is he begins to chase himself in a circle going after this tail but when he finally captures the tail, he bites the tail, he whimpers, because what he thought would give him pleasure actually brought him pain. Because he wasn't chasing a someone, he was chasing a something. Can you say amen to that? You see, when it comes to sexuality, it is not just a something, it is connected to a someone. We live in a generation now where sexuality has just become a thing. And so what God is calling his people to do is to understand, to celebrate, to appreciate the biblical truth of sexuality. Can you say amen to that? And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to take a good look at a few points of sexuality. And the first point is this. God created sex. Can you say amen to that? Can you get a louder amen than that? Some of you act like, okay, I don't know why I'm saying amen. God created sex. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 2. The book of Genesis chapter 2. God created sex. Genesis chapter 2. Now I want you to notice as creation, the creation process is taking place. Genesis chapter 1. It's the survey of all of creation. Genesis chapter 2, I believe, is God's favorite part of creation. He touches down, and there is a focused look at the creation of Adam and Eve. And the Bible begins to describe how these two came together. And notice what the scripture says when this happens. Verse 21, and the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of what? In fact, if you notice something, the margins tend to be a little bit wider in that particular context. And that is because there is something Moses knew, translators know, that people who read the English version do not know. Is that when Adam was speaking these words, he was speaking in poetic language. This was not just simply some kind of PhD lecture. He was saying to something that was very romantic and beautiful and poetic. And he was saying, this is the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. And then notice what it says in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. What? They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here you begin to see the intimation of a sexual union that began to take place between Adam and Eve. Here the Bible begins to describe in very beautiful language of the union of Adam and Eve. Sexuality did not begin after the fall. Sexuality was not created by the devil. Sexuality was created by God. You were created as sexual beings. I'm so glad my mom's not here. (laughs) I was just thinking about that. I was like, I'm so glad she is not here. The Bible here is describing a union that seems to be growing closer and closer. And what you find in the very next chapter is the fall of man. Satan was watching what was taking place. In fact, one preacher called him the very first porno watcher. He was viewing what was taking place between Adam and Eve, and he sought to corrupt what God had given to mankind. Sexuality was meant to be part of marriage. It's really interesting. Anybody here want to admit they love the book Song of Solomon? Five of you are telling the truth right now. You know, when I went to Weimar College... I began studying the Bible more and more. I began to fall in love with Jesus out there in the nature and around good people there. And I never forgot, one day I went to lunch, and I had been going through the Song of Solomon. And I didn't want people to know I was going through the Song of Solomon. And I never forgot that when I was down there eating lunch in the cafeteria, I was going through the third or fourth chapter of Song of Solomon, and that's where it starts becoming hot and heavy, right? And so you're reading this and you're just intensely involved and wondering to yourself, how is a book like this in the Bible? And I never forgot, someone walked by and this is exactly what I did. I had my Bible and I went like this. (laughs) I did not want them to know I was reading the Song of Solomon. And I thought to myself, man, if people knew I read the Song of Solomon, they would know what's on my heart. But friends, I want you to know something. God intentionally put that, book, put, put that book there for a reason. Can you say amen to that? But you know what's so powerful about the Song of Solomon? When you read the Song of Solomon, it is full of various kinds of phrases and words. Do you know a word that appears over and over and over again in the Song of Solomon? It is the word garden. You know what else appears in the book Song of Solomon? The word fruit. And what you find in this environment of the garden Two lovers begin to come together, and as they wed, they begin to experience this beautiful physical relationship called sex. But what is so powerful is the reason why you're seeing a lot of these metaphors and these descriptions of a garden and a fruit is because the writers of the Song of Solomon are drawing your hearts and minds back to the Garden of Eden. In other words, as these two people begin to fall madly in love, and as they begin to experience a sexual union, it is a call back to the Garden of Pleasure or the Garden of Eden. In fact, when you read the Song of Solomon, you know one thing there is no mention of? Children. There's no idea, no mention of her getting pregnant. There's no mention of the childbirth. There's no mention of them thinking we're going to have 10, 12, 13 children. And the reason why is because sex is not just about procreation. It is also about pleasure. Can you say amen to that? God designed this for humanity. But what is interesting is when you study out The Song of Solomon, you will see a phrase appear over and over and over again throughout the Song of Solomon. Have you ever had anybody who, who, you know, was eating perhaps this carob cake before? You ever hear like carob? I love that stuff. (laughs) And uh, I remember when someone was just eating this carob cake I had walked by, and and they were just, just, you know, when someone is eating something so intimately, you can just hear the slurping as they're just like, chewing this food, and you could just see the delight in their face, right? But imagine if someone was eating something like that to you, around you, and then you're looking at it, and you can just see they're kind of taunting you a bit, and then they say to you, by the way, you can't have any of this. (laughs) And it's interesting, when you're reading the Song of Solomon, you get introduced to this beautiful idea of romance, this beautiful marriage, and this beautiful sexual union, and that throughout the Song of Solomon embedded is this phrase, Do not do it until you're ready. Don't awaken this until you're ready. Don't even get involved in this until the right time. Which helps us to understand something, and that is this. When it comes to the education, the understanding of sexuality, we have to understand there are boundaries within sexuality. This is a powerful thing that God wants us to be responsible about. Can you say amen to that? Point number two is this. Sex meets its highest purpose within the context of what? Marriage. Anybody here love log cabins? I love log cabins. It's a dream to have a log cabin, right? And it's interesting. In the log cabin, I just imagine to myself a beautiful fire. I love fire. Fire's amazing. When I go visit my mom in Orange County, I sit by the fireplace. You can ask my brother. He's here. I'm always by the fireplace. I love fireplaces. I just, you know, I just want to hug it. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm really close to this fireplace. Anyhow, when it comes to fire, fire within this beautiful context is a wonderful thing. Can you say amen to that? But fire right here is not a beautiful thing. Fire in a fireplace on a cold, rainy, maybe snowy day is a beautiful thing. Fire on a cold night when you are camping is a very beautiful thing. Fire when you're cooking delicious food is a beautiful thing. A house on fire is not a beautiful thing. Your foot on fire is not a beautiful thing. Your dog on fire is not a beautiful thing. And the reason why I'm saying this is not just to be funny, it's because Fire out of of its context can become a dangerous thing. Similarly, sex out of its context can become a very dangerous thing. It is a powerful thing. And so God wants us to respect it within its context. All right. Do we have any chemists here? Anybody can tell me what that is? Raise your hand if you think you know what this is. I will be extremely impressed if you do. Yeah, in the back. Exactly. Very good. Very good. I know what's on your mind, brother. <laughs> oxytocin, right there, right? Hey, when it comes to oxytocin, you know, every preacher and his mom seems to be talking about this thing. But it's a very powerful hormone that is released or produced by the hypothalamus, right? And the reason why it's so interesting is because more and more researchers are starting to understand that this hormone when it is released, it is connected to love, to bonding, to faithfulness. And they actually have tested oxytocin uh, in a nasal spray form. I was reading one research article in which they sprayed men who were about to gamble. And they found that those that were sprayed with this oxytocin uh, spray begin to have a greater trust of the men in the gambling game. And they found this consistently. In fact, I was reading another research article found in the Journal of Neuroscience where they did a test on about 57 red-blooded heterosexual Germans. They tested them, and each one of them had a partner. They either had a girlfriend or they were married. And what they did is they brought in these very beautiful female interviewers. And so they had no clue what was going on. You had the first group that was actually sprayed with the oxytocin spray, the second group which was sprayed with the placebo, and a third group that was not sprayed at all. And what they found is when these beautiful interviewers came in, that those that were in the placebo group and those that were not sprayed at all, they began to move in a little bit closer to these beautiful interviewers. They stepped in a little bit closer. They seemed to smile more. They seemed to flirt a little bit more with these seductresses. <laughs> but they found that those that were sprayed with the oxytocin, they kept a distance. In fact, what they begin to realize is that oxytocin not only creates bonding, it also creates this sort of distance or to rivals to that bond. It's a very powerful thing that God put in mankind. But you want to know when oxytocin is released the most in men? During sex. Do you know when it is released the most to women? Before sex, during sex, and after sex, not just, you know, besides labor and uh, when women get pregnant. It's very interesting. With men, it's just during sex. Why am I bringing this up? Because as sexual unification takes place, as this physical act takes place, bonding begins to happen. A very powerful bond begins to happen. A unifying begins to happen that God created in us biologically to take place during this time. In fact, the reason why it is so important to understand why sexuality is very important within the context of marriage. is because this. Is that when people have premarital sex, they end up bonding with each other, they end up getting married very fast, and realizing after about two years of marriage, they married the wrong person. You see, when you violate God's laws and you violate the principles laid out in Scripture, there are always consequences. And I know there are many people who might have made mistakes, and God winks at our ignorance. Can you say amen to that? But now that we know better, and now that we understand a little bit more of what the Bible is teaching about this subject... Here we begin to see there are plenty of reasons why God wants sexuality between a man and a woman to stay within the context of marriage. Can you say amen to that? Point number three is this. Sex is a journey, not just a what? So I was doing some research. By the way, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, I'm going to be talking about Leather and Crown, The Love Story of James and Ellen White. You don't want to miss it. That's at 4 o'clock. Speaking about that, so I was doing some research and preparation. Um, all the single people are like, okay, I'm going to be there. So anyway, so, sorry. <laughs> and married people, too. I'm sure you'll be there and people and whatever. But anyhow, so I was doing some history, uh, some study into the history of the pioneers. And it's really remarkable because when you study out some of the stories that take place, you learn some powerful lessons. You see, James White was, um, you know, told if he, you know, asked if he could marry a young couple, Daniel Bordeaux, and this woman by the name of Marion Saxby. And what happened was they were invited to this beautiful estate. So James and Ellen White were there. The wedding took place. And the estate owners told James and Ellen White, hey, After the wedding, you're welcome to stay in this beautiful estate. We want to just offer you a room. So they stayed. But something happened. Little white had to take care of her needs, woke up kind of late, walked outside into the lobby, and she saw that man, Daniel Bordeaux. And he was sitting in the chair. His hands were in his face. And he seemed to be full of anxiety. He seemed to be very anxious. He was troubled on the night of his wedding. He is about to go into his wife. And he is just struggling with the whole thing. And he's just there, a wreck, wondering what's going to happen. Is it going to be as good as everybody says it's going to be? Look what Ellen White says. This is found on the Ellen White estate When Ellen White went upstairs to retire, she saw a very nervous young man pacing back and forth in front of a closed bedroom door. She suspected a problem. (laughs) Gently, she said to the young bridegroom, as the bride later quoted her husband's recital of the incident, Daniel, inside that room is a frightened young woman in bed, petrified with fear. Now you go into her right now. And you love her and you comfort her. And Daniel, you treat her gently. Can you say amen to that? And you treat her tenderly. And you treat her lovingly. It will do her good. And I just imagine this next part with a little bit of curl in her lip, a little bit of smile as she's going back into her room. Then she added, Daniel, it will do you good too. (laughs) Closes the door. And that couple remained a faithful, happy couple. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Friends, I want you to understand something about sexuality. This idea that you somehow have to prepare for it by doing it is not a good thing. This idea that you have to get good at it before it actually should take place is not a good thing. Sexuality is a journey that takes place between a man and woman. And the reason why God designed it to be that way is because as the couple grows together, as they begin to share, as they become more and more intimate, there is a simultaneous progressive growth that happens. They begin to realize that it is love that should precede sex. It is love that takes place during sex, and it is love that happens after sex. They begin to realize sex is not about your needs. It's about ministering to another person's needs. In fact, there are some old Jewish writings that actually predate the time of Christ where they actually commanded men on Friday night to attend to the sexual needs of their wives. When I read that, I thought, wow, that's crazy. And the reason why is because you get this idea that even back then in the Jewish culture, it was very important to understand that this this physical, intimate relationship is something that needs to be tended to. And it is something through the confines of love and selflessness that is made to minister to the other person. It's not about a thing. It's not just about chasing that tail. Can you say amen to that? It's about another person. And as you minister to their needs in this sexual act, you begin to recognize that this is what love is all about. You know, some people have this idea. They'll say, hey, you know that it's good marriages that lead to great love, right? Great marriages lead to great love. Great love leads to great sex. But here's the thing. Even sex itself, because of oxytocin, also provides a balm not B-O-M-B, B-A-L-M, to the marriage itself. It helps soothe some of the discomfort and the tension that exists within marriage. Doesn't solve all the problems, amen? In fact, when it comes to sex, we also need to understand this, and that is this. There's a difference between something being natural and something being essential, right? Your Desire for sex may be natural, but it is not essential. And I mean that, you know, especially speaking to those that are not in a married relationship. Your thirst for water is natural, but it's also very essential. Amen? You can survive more than three or four days without water, but you have survived this long without sex. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because sex is not the end game when it comes to life, amen? It is a tool, it is an experience that plays a part in marriage, and marriage is this beautiful, symbolic act. It is a powerful picture of the love of God. And the last point I want to bring out is this, that our sexuality is connected to our spirituality much more than we know. If you have your Bible, let's go to the book of John, chapter 4. The book of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, He left Judea, departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. Amen. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And what begins to happen here? is this very interesting dialogue as Jesus begins to offer her something more than she was getting. She had come to this well in the middle of the day to escape scrutiny. She brought her water pot. It was a hot day. This is not the time to bring water and to do hard manual labor. But she went there to get away from all the people. And Jesus happened to be there at that very moment. And when he was there, he begins to talk to her about water, and then he begins to describe something so special that he has for her. He says, if you knew who I was, I would have offered you something much better. Living water. But you see, friends, before she could be filled up, she had to be emptied out. And notice what happens when the woman is ready to get that water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. He begins to put his finger on the pulse of something she wanted hidden For many weeks and months and years. The secret of her life. Notice what it says next. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus answered and said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In this yet you truly spoke You know, when you study out this story, it's not like her husbands, each one of them died off. For whatever the reason, there seemed to be this disconnection that took place between her and the first husband, and then the second husband, then the third husband, then the fourth husband, then the fifth husband. Finally, she gets to the sixth husband, and she's not even interested in a kind of commitment, only intimacy with this man. This is something she was hiding from the world. She did not want people to know about the problem of her sexuality. She didn't want people to know about this sin in her life, the, the strong cravings that she had in life. She had a big problem, and she was hoping no one would ever know about it. And as Jesus begins to expose this issue... She does what many Christians do whenever they start feeling the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. They turn to theological controversy. And that's what she began to do. She began to talk about the the place of worship for the Samaritans. She began to talk about the place of worship for the Jews. And Jesus gently corrects her. But he does not stop with the lesson. And I love what Ellen White says. She says, Jesus had to help this woman recognize her sin, but doesn't just stop there. And her Savior. Notice what takes place at this very pivotal moment. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, she was saying, wait a minute. This is a discussion about the temple location, the place of worship. Should the temple be there or should the temple be there? And what Jesus was saying effectually was, you are supposed to be the temple of the living God. You are supposed to be the temple of the living God. In fact, many times when we quote it in 1 Corinthians, when you actually read the context, it's not talking about specifically your diet. It has to do with sexuality, sexuality. And then notice what happens. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. Who is called Christ. When he comes, he's going to tell us these things. And I love what Jesus says to her. I who speak to you am he. And what began to take place was so powerful you begin to see the beginning of this woman's conversion the beginning of this woman's transformation the beginning of this woman's calling the beginning of this woman's change in her life and you know how it took place it took place when this woman began to realize that the god of heaven and earth Knew everything about her life. He knew about her secret sins. But he did not run away. She was fully known and fully loved. And it doesn't say when she left her father, when she left that last person's house, she began to evangelize. No, it was as she was being delivered. She began mission work. Friends, I want you to know something, and that is this. There is nothing more than Satan wants than to keep sexuality, biblical sexuality, in a dark place. There is nothing more than Satan wants than to keep your sexual issues and problems in a dark place that no one knows about. Because it's in those dark places that evil begins to breed more and more. I want to make something very clear. And that is this. To be fully known with all that you are and yet to be fully loved is where transformation and change begins to take place. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Friends, God loved you on the day you were wrestling with thoughts of lust as much as on the day that you gave your heart to Christ. God loved you on the day that you went on that pornographic site on the same day that you were baptized. God loved you when you were messing around with that person who you knew you shouldn't mess around with on the very day that you knew that your calling and elect was sure. It is to be fully known and to be fully loved in spite of your faults where change begins to happen. And I am no fool when it comes to young adults and the struggles that they face. Unfortunately, we don't like to talk about these things, but we need to talk about these things because what you do not confront, you will not conquer. What you do not confront, you will not conquer. God wants to breathe life into your soul. He wants to breathe life into your experience. No longer will sexuality be that sin that seems to push you back, hold you back, that seems to crush you. And what was meant as darkness and death will become a source of light and beauty. a love what the Spirit of Prophecy says right here hearts that have been the battleground of conflict with Satan, and that have been rescued by the power of what? Not force, love, are more precious to the Redeemer than those who have never fallen. God looked upon humanity not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it In Christ, solid as it might become through redeeming love. Today, God is offering to you the water of life. He's offering to you what you need most. And you may not want, but what you need most. And what this woman needed was not just abstinence. She needed sustenance. She needed to know the experience of God who is right there with her and does not run from her during this time, that she is broken and needs mending. And God has done the same for you. God wants to empty you out so He can fill you up. He wants to fill you up, and He wants your life, your life, to be as a fountain that gives life to other people. I want to make this appeal practical, and that is this morning, if you have sensed the Spirit speak to you, you have sensed in your life a great need, and you sense the brokenness in your own soul, Jesus is inviting you to the well. He is inviting you to drink of the living water. And if that's you tonight, or this morning, I should say, I want to make a very special appeal and just say, I want you to come out down here this morning and say, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for the living water. Is there anybody this morning that wants to come forward and just say, that's me. I want this living water. Please come to the front. We just have special prayer. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. It doesn't matter what that issue is. If that's you, I invite you just to come to the front here and receive what God has for you. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you told that woman at the well. I who speak to you am he. Thank you, God, that not One part of us is hid from you. Thank you, Lord. You know the brokenness within our soul. You know what we have inherited. You know what we have cultivated. God, thank you. You do not leave this place. And you do not leave us. God, I pray that you would bless those that are thirsty for that living water. And Lord, that you would bless them incredibly That more and more, God, they would sense the freedom that we have with you. Dear Jesus, I pray for those that are especially struggling, feel they're in a hand to hand battle with the devil. Lord, bless them with your grace and mercy. Help them to know, Lord, that it's your battle. Thank you for the great love. Thank you for the great blessings and privileges you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.